0: Well, we've talked around but haven't zeroed in on Gal Gadot because she's the other big name and big role in this movie. And I have to say, the first Wonder Woman I really enjoyed. I thought was super fun. The second one I thought was just a a big mess and completely regrettable. And she's, for me, completely lost in this movie. I mean, wonderful to look at. That's never a question. But in terms of acting and how well she does this role, Wow, what a disappointment. Hello and welcome to At the Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver.
1: I'm Mike Giuliano.
0: Today we're going to talk about two movies that are out in the theater now, Death on the Nile and Cyrano, starting with Death on the Nile. So this is a follow-up to Murder on the Orient Express, where we already had Kenneth Branagh and that amazing mustache show up to do Hercule Poirot and in this iteration Mike I tell you I'm a big fan of Agatha Christie and of that character Hercule Poirot and what I thought was the main takeaway from this film was how it was all about that character and how all the other famous people around him were just sort of you know side dishes. What did you think?
1: Well since what you mentioned <laughs> the mustache I'll, I'll talk about that as, as well this is a film in which you get an origin story specifically about that belgian detective and it, the origin story is like flashback type material uh, in world war one what happened to him during the war and this is you discover as you watch the film but in any event there's an explanatory story there as to ha how did he get that mustache why did he get it and so on and i don't want to you know I'm, I'm sort of semi-spoiling it already but just a sense that you know, you'll find out why he's got the the, the mustache and it seems to me that when you take Agatha Christie, you have properties like this one that have been filmed before. And you always have to think about, well, what do you want to do with it? And with the Agatha Christie mysteries, because they oftentimes tend to be ensemble pieces, you really think about how you can load up on, on the casting. And I'll say right off the bat here that this latest version, the Kenneth Branagh one, I'm not crazy about it. I, I love the expression mess. sometimes. It, it's just... And I would like to think of a more sophisticated way to say meh, but but when people have asked me about this version of Death in the Nile, I have found myself sort of simpering and saying, well, it's okay, it's not bad, it passes the time, isn't it? I think, gee, there must be like a loftier academic language to describe why it's not an exciting film. And we can get into that a bit more, but let me give one reason why. There was an earlier version of Death in the Nile from 1978, which is a minor film. I don't think it's a particularly strong film, but you know what? It has a fabulous cast and they're really overacting with great enjoyment. What I'm getting at is, I remember when that one came out, I was so critical of it, but in retrospect, at least, I like it more because of the actors attached, people I wanna see, and also the fact that the material is quasi hammy, so why not have these actors, many of them well into their careers and sometimes caricatures in, in a way of themselves, why not have them just go to town with it? There were so many famous names attached to that 1978 version, I actually have to um, write it down and uh, like read the list. It's like a biblical proportions. <laughs> and I actually have had some direct contact with, I've met Peter Ustinov, who plays Hercule Piraro in, in, in that 78 version, and yeah, you know, really an impressive actor and just intellectual all-around talent. But anyway, Peter Ustinov has that crucial central role, and he's just a, a, a confident Capable actor. But let me just quickly read that list of names because it'll take me probably most of our episode just to read the list. But think about this. These were all people in the 1978 version. You know, Peter Ustinov heads the cast, but listen who's with him Jane Birkin, Lois Childs, Betty Davis, Mia Farrow, David Niven, Olivia Hussey, Angela Lansbury, Jack Warden, Maggie Smith. George Kennedy. It, you know, you'd have to have like an airport type movie or or some other disaster flick from the 70s to get a cast quite like that. And it's just fun to watch all those famous faces. Now, one reason why I cite that is again, a lot of them are not giving their best performances, but they're having fun with the material. They're kind of sending themselves up along with it. And yeah, for a viewer, that's fun to watch. But the second reason I mention all this is by way of saying, when I think this new Kenneth Branagh version is just sort of, eh, so-so, meh, comme si comme sa mienza, mienza, when I react that way, it's just, uh, Marie, you you know when I can talk about this, of course, uh, when I look at the cast in this most recent version, not to be unfair to them, but the caliber of the names doesn't quite match up to the caliber that we had in that 78 version. What do you think?
0: You're, You're right about that. But I will say that I did like seeing Annette Bening, who I haven't seen in a while in a movie. And she was kind of fun to watch. And despite all the stuff that's been in the news about Army Hammer, I thought he was a good choice for, you know, the role that he was cast in. I like Gal Gadot, although I don't think she was at her best in this movie. I like Rose Leslie. What it really reminded me of, and I hope this doesn't sound like a diss because I don't really mean it this way, but it reminded me of the TV shows that I know you're familiar with, Mike, like The Love Boat or and all the more so because this occurs on a boat or love American style where you have some standard actors who show up every time and then they play off of the guest stars and it's all about the guest stars so I'll agree with you that the guest stars here are not of the caliber you listed for the movie from the 70s but it did have that feeling to me that you know what if you just forget about the guest stars and realize it's really a vehicle for Kenneth Branagh to play Hercule Poirot you'll have a much better time enjoying the movie and seeing what they do with the Agatha Christie story. What do you think, Mike?
1: I love your comment about the Love Boat. I know it was not intended as a backhanded compliment, but it has that aura to it, like, oh, it's the best thing I've seen since Love Boat. You know, it's sort of an odd sort of praise to expend there. But I understand what you're saying. There are some very appealing actors here. I didn't want to, like, you know, overplay my hand in terms of, you know, the caliber of the cast, because, you know, these are actors who've done good work, I think better work than they're doing here, but have done good work, but here's a case in point. I've met Annette Bening and I admire her a lot as an actor. She's really terrific, etc. But you know what, here in this film, she's one of the supporting characters. She plays a painter. She does not get a lot of screen time. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's nice to see her, but it's an underdeveloped character. And, and some of the other characters, I think also are more or less underdeveloped that way. And for, In terms of Army Hammer, this is a very sensitive point with this film. Bear in mind, this is a film that had you know, gone into production and you know, because of the pandemic, you know, d- various delays and so on. But the reason I mention all that is when they were shooting the film, there was not an issue in terms of public scandal. By the time the film is finally ready for release uh, this year, Army Hammer's had you know, some serious allegations against him and, and you know, could derail his career, seems to have. Here was the quandary they were in. Should they somehow at this point, like in post-production, close to release, somehow try to recast it. You know, all the money in the world did that, didn't it? I mean, you you can have it, you know, when Kevin Spacey got in trouble, you know, you can have somebody else plugged in like that and and make it work, but boy, that's a high stakes strategy, isn't it? But the problem here, and I think frankly, why they couldn't do that here is the nature of this Agatha Christie ensemble. You have a group of eccentric characters gathered on a boat in the Nile. They're on a cruise. There's a murder mystery, which I won't spoil for anyone. But in any event, they are so tightly interwoven with the film basically already shot, there's no way you could really go into it, realistically, plausibly, you know what I mean? And try to like insert some other actor in the army hammer, role. it's just, you'd have to reshoot the picture basically. So what they did, and I, I sort of feel sorry, it's not often I feel sorry for producers, distributors, et cetera, you know, I tend to be kind of, you know, tough nose there, like, hey, you know, these, these are business people, right? But you know what, where I did feel sorry for them was, what are they gonna do here? And what they did was, and then actually I think, was probably the best they could do. When they put together trailers for the film, Coming Attractions, they downplayed the Army Hammer character, certainly by name. So, so he was there, you can see him and all, but they really sort of downplayed that. They're not going to play like above the title and with Army Hammer. No, they, they played that down. And then in other marketing for the film, they haven't offered excuses or apologies for him, whatever, because he's got these serious charges against him. They just sort of let it go, like, well, here's the big cast, and yeah, there's his name and so on. And I think. You know, viewers, you know, honestly, we're, we're all smart viewers. It's just like, well, we arrive at our own ethical judgments there. Some people with very strong feelings might say, well, if he's in it, I'm not going to watch it. You know, that's a sort of dogmatic. I'm not going to watch it. And I won't watch any of the films by the other people in it either, you know, by extension, you know, they're, they're, they're all canceled. But I think most viewers will watch it with that in mind. Well, this guy's gotten himself in a lot of trouble. But now let's, by way of escapism, let's, if anything, ironically, escape from that for at least two hours, Right. Let's immerse ourselves in this story. Watch a minute. He's, you know, he's, he does capable work in it and so on. And is it possible to put one's ethical reservations on the shelf? For me, I say, well, maybe for 90 minutes to two hours, I can try. Marie, how do you feel about that? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm jesting about it, but it is a serious issue. When you have an actor who gets in trouble of whatever sort, gets in trouble, how do you handle it? I mean, what are your thoughts on this?
0: I think it's very tricky. And until the scandal came out, I really liked Army Hammer, especially in the movie, on the Basis of Sex, where he plays Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Martin Ginsburg, and he was great in that. And he's, whenever I've seen him in things, I've always thought he was a good actor, but I didn't even recognize him at first. He he's, he's introduces the sort of generic boyfriend that two women are fighting over, and I didn't even recognize him at first. But once I did, I thought that the character that gave him to play was something that, could still work and I thought it did work but I didn't like him in this movie the way I did in other things he's been in before I knew I think that's probably common you, you go to see somebody you like them like like I do wonder we don't have to get into this whole thing but I do wonder uh what will happen with Will Smith's career now now that some people feel differently about him. so I think it's tricky when when you have a scandal happen in Hollywood it can make or break your career
1: and it's oftentimes rather arbitrary, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but, you know, you would like to think there would be what I call ethical absolutes. You do this and, this is, and that's the consequence in career terms. But, you know, again, I don't want to start naming names in the sense of because we, we could easily fill the show just with that discussion. But it is a tricky issue because some actors really do essentially have their careers ended by some kind of scandal. Other people have to sort of pivot or redirect in one way or another. And it's not always consistent. And I suppose life is complicated too, so why would I expect it to be you know, streamlined? But in, in Hollywood particularly, the hypocrisy is something that's not unknown there, right? So sometimes people just sort of bounce back and go right on. But I rather than get into that whole discussion, because it's easy to get into it and then difficult to get out of it, <laughs> rather than getting into that too deep, let me pivot at myself on one thing you mentioned, the likability factor. This is not something empirical. I mean, you can't say how many pounds or whatever something has, but there's an emotional quotient here. In other words, the the actors you like, for whatever reason. And and let me cut to the chase on this. In terms of likability, and one reason why I feel this film is eh, so-so, there are actors, as I said earlier, like Annette Bening that I really like, you know, and I just feel she's, when I say misused here, she's not used enough. She kind of pops up a little bit and, and then she's gone. And I thought, geez, what a waste of talent in a way. Uh, and that's a, a case of I like her so much that I want more of her in this film. You either give us more of her as a developed character, or just kick the character out. You know, like it's distracting at some point. Army Hammer, I agree with you, Marie. He's done really good work before. He's just got a likable screen presence. But when I sort of go down the line here, almost like actor by actor in terms of the really name actors. If I like them well enough here, I've liked them more in other properties. And and I think you're agreeing on this, that they're doing okay here, but when we start to talk about them as actors, aren't we immediately gonna go to other films by these actors that we prefer?
0: And I think this is where, and I'm sorry to keep plugging the, because I don't mean to make it sound bad, but this is where the love boat analogy comes in. Where, yeah, I mean, Annette Benning, you know, you've seen her do great things. And you could see her taking a role on the love boat where she plays some small character that adds to the show but isn't showy, or this is not a role you take because you think, man, I really want to see if I can have another crack at that best actress award it's not that it's about wanting to work with a bunch of famous people all together on a on a classic story by you know Agatha Christie who you know never wrote a bad plot so and also i think probably to be involved in a vehicle that was done by Kenneth Branagh and i mean i think we should at least glance over the fact that could this be any less like belfast so in terms of if you were a Kenneth Branagh fan this is just an amazing contrast to the very personal story he was telling in Belfast. And this is, it's not quite camp, but it almost gets there because he's imbued this, you know, classic character of Para with, you know, OCD tendencies and whatnot, and the outrageous mustache. But that's why I think the key to these movies, because I think they're going to keep making them, he's the center of, around which everything Rotate so you can keep making these movies with him and have this kind of love boat kind of oh who's going to play you know the dowager empress with the jewels that get stolen or whatever it is you can see how they could keep spinning it off spinning it off so in terms of him as Poirot how do you think he does Mike because I think he does a really good job
1: I do too, actually. It's one of the things that helps to, I shouldn't say anchor the film because the boat has to keep moving down the Nile, but the performance (laughs) does more or less anchor it. And since you're talking about the uh, possibility and the probability of sequels, Kenneth Branagh has talked extensively about this. This is meant now as both a compliment and a bit of a knock. He finally won an Academy Award, of course, for his screenplay for Belfast. And you and I talked about Belfast on an earlier episode, which we had mixed feelings about. But but you know that his script finally got Oscar recognition that way. This film, Definitely Now, is not going to get that kind of recognition at all. But to his credit, the fact that he's a hardworking, prolific actor slash director, the fact that you know in the same year, basically the same span of years, to work on two really disparate projects like this, it's a lot for him, actually, as as a talent. To your point, though, about the uh, impending sequels, he had done Murder on the Orient Express in 2017, which, of course, is already a remake of what I think was a better earlier version. I guess I like the older movies better. It comes down to that. And now, you know, as, as Poirot, he's very good, actually, so I can see him continuing to play that role. And in interviews, he has said that very thing. He said in one interview, and I don't know if this is impressive or frightening, but he said, you know, Agatha Christie wrote 66 novels and plays and, and short stories and you name it. You know, she's so prolific. And yeah, these have been done before, but they can always be done again. He Plans are in the works to make more of these films. So, Marie, it's not just conjecture on our part. He's announced it. Now, the one thing that may temper that is this version of Death on the Nile had a fairly big budget. Uh, the box office was fairly moderate, you know, and I'm not usually one to crunch numbers too much because I want to focus more on aesthetic matters. But you know, in, in crunching numbers, I thought, you know, if I were a producer type, would I green light the next one? I think, well, maybe so, because eventually with ancillary, you'll you'll make it back. But this was not exactly a big smash at the box office. But the fact that you're, you know, working with a, a large name cast, the fact that you have a fairly involved story, you know, on, on a riverboat and so on. There are things that add to your costs, whether you want them to or not. So there's that kind of analysis. Honestly, my bottom line feeling is I've liked his uh, Agatha Christie versions well enough. And Poirot is a role that he's really well suited for. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing some more of them. But I, I keep smiling at, at your comparisons with Love Boat, because maybe he should, like, put Agatha Christie aside for a little bit and just do a Love Boat movie. My God. <laughs>
0: That's a good idea. Well, we've talked around but haven't zeroed in on Gal Gadot, because she's the other big name and big role in this movie. And I have to say the first Wonder Woman I really enjoyed I thought was super fun. The second one I thought was just a a big mess and completely regrettable. And she's for me. Completely lost in this movie. I mean, wonderful to look at. That's never a question, but in terms of acting and how well she does this role, wow! What a disappointment.
1: Thank you for saying that because I thought maybe I somehow was just not up to snuff on this. And as I was watching the film, of course, I knew knew it was her, right? But as I'm watching it, I had to like, ironically, kind of like remind myself periodically, "Oh, that's who that is," because uh, it's it's a rather dull character. And, and she doesn't really, I mean, she's extremely photogenic. I'll put it that way. I mean, you know, she's easy to watch, but there wasn't much to think about. You know, there wasn't much sense of character development or just of interest on my part. And that's one reason why I haven't really mentioned her or we haven't mentioned her up until this moment. The second reason, uh, honestly, is a more pragmatic one. Because this is a murder mystery, at the heart of it, there is a, a, a love triangle involving these three characters, the two women and the one man, and in terms of Who's engaged to whom? What's the backstory here? What are the prior romantic entanglements, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to be deliberately vague there because even though I pride myself, I suppose on, on sort of figuring things out you know fairly early in this story, like kind of no probably because I'd seen earlier screen versions of the material and just you know had read about the film. but but all that aside, watching the film, I thought, you know, to the extent that one discovers, what's going on, who's behind the murder, ultimately, right? I don't want to spoil any of that for any viewer for any reason. So when we talk about the two female characters and the male principal, well, Gal Gadot plays the one, Emma Mackey the other. So those are the two women. And of course, Army Hammer plays the man. Marie, what can we safely, I'll, I'm going to punt on this one. What can we safely say about that love triangle, that romantic story without really giving anything away?
0: Well, I don't think we can. I think that you just have to go into the movie. Don't read anything about it, except, of course, having listened to you and I talk about it, Mike. Oh, of course. Uh, just go into it cold and honestly keep in mind that it's really about Kenneth Branagh as Poirot and everybody else is just a satellite. Because now I want to pivot over to Cyrano, which I was really looking forward to coming out, even though I hadn't even seen a trailer. I had just seen that Peter Dinklage was in it. It was about Cyrano. And so I went in without knowing anything about it and I want to say first of all that I thought it was genius that he is Cyrano but you know everybody I've talked to about it has said but what about the nose and what do they do about the nose this time Cyrano is not self-conscious about his nose he's self-conscious because he's a little person and I thought that was a really great way to change that up And then avoid that whole prosthetic nose thing, which always kind of comes off as goofy. And I love seeing Peter Binklage in this, but I imagine my surprise while I'm sitting there in the theater and I find out that it's a musical. So, Mike, how did the movie land on you when you saw it in the theater?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It landed on me mostly in an agreeable way. But but by way of um, backdrop here, it's important to remember this is based on an 1897 play by Edmund Rostand. That's so often done on the stage, so famous within popular culture, uh, not just in France but but everywhere. We all know Cyrano in terms of the story outline, and of course, always most prominently is that prominent nose. I guess it's it's providential that my my nose is probably probably oversized too, so so I, I can identify that way. But here's the, the seriously the real problem. Or, I don't I shouldn't say problem. The challenge for a filmmaker approaching it. this story. Not only is it done on stage constantly, but there have been several, at least several film versions of it. Going back to José Ferrer in 1950, Derek Jacobi, I think the mid 80s, Gerard Depardieu, a very good film version actually in in 1990. I met Depardieu when he was doing that. And and, and, and he has the perfect face and swagger to play something like that. So anyway, what I'm getting at is this story has been done and done and done. What are you going to do with it now? What they did with it is a twofold creative decision. And one of them works incredibly well, the other not quite as well. So let me start off with the latter. What doesn't work entirely well? I remember reading about the musical version of this when, when it came out in 2019, I was intrigued by that. I mean, the reviews were mixed to positive. To take Cyrano and do it as a you know, Broadway, splashy musical. Okay, that's good. I mean, I, just on a conceptual level, I think it, it's material that would lend itself to musical treatment. I didn't see the staged version. I mean, I've seen it on stage as a straight play. I didn't see the musical version of it. So anyway, I'm coming in cold in that respect. The musical score here is serviceable. As you're watching it, it's fine. No huge complaints. There's nothing particularly memorable. There's not much you would take out of the theater with you that way. And that's, that's the equivalent of when I've seen many staged musicals where I thought it was agreeable, but but like on the drive home, am I humming anything? Am I remembering it? And this is a case where I say, no, not really. It's, it's a mediocre score. So let's give it a, a sort of a mixed score grade on, on, on that count that the musical treatment doesn't actively hurt it, but it doesn't really further it as much as I'd hoped it would. And yet what holds it then is the essential storyline, which is always strong here. So anyway, the two major creative innovations, one was to have the musical score, The second was, and this is what I think works incredibly well, Peter Dinklage in the title role because Marie makes a really good point that it's really difficult in stage versions. And I've, I've encountered this as a theater goer, but even more so in movie versions. How do you get away from the prosthetic nose? How are you somehow, are we watching Pinocchio or what? You know, how do you, how do you get away with from, from these things? And so that's where actually I thought a lot about it. And I thought, this is genius casting. I mean, Peter Dinklage, of course, is a really, really strong actor. So I never had, you know, qualms or concerns that way. And then the moment he came on screen and and from the opening scenes of it, I thought, what a great idea. Because in the the Cyrano story, the whole idea is because of his physical appearance, because of that nose, he may love Roxanne and, and he may have all of the virtues and advantages of being really, really smart and really articulate. So whether it's writing a love letter or making a florid speech. And after all, this is a late 19th century play. That has a 17th century sensibility. So that kind of rhetorical swagger, you know, is there that, that overripe language and all, we revel in it, we glory in it. It's just wonderful and, and, you know, in French and English and any language. It's just really glorious to hear that almost kind of like Shakespearean quality of just language in love with itself, right? So, you know, here he's gonna be that, that person who loves her. But he just doesn't think he has a chance there. Meantime, there's the young soldier Christian who is, you know, box office handsome and all this and that, but, but just stumbles over his own words. So you can take it from there. And we all sort of know the story that, well, okay, I'll supply you, I'll, I'll whisper what you, sh- what you should say and so on. So, anyway, having that as the dynamic, rather than it be the facial appearance, the, the nose bluntly, that's the issue for him, why not make it the fact that he is, you know, a, a little person? And I thought, wow, you don't even need to have much commentary within the film. It's just built into the structure of it that he just feels he doesn't stand a chance. If you have, you know, Peter Dinklage as Cyrano uh, standing next to the actor who's, who's playing uh, Christian, you know, like, like, well, in terms of, uh, you know, stereotypes or conventional romantic tropes, you know, who's she going to go for? <laughs> or, or just in terms of conventional storytelling, who's she more likely? Well, I don't have to even finish the sentence, right? So you can see how it's set up. And Dinklage really, uh, he swaggers his way, he fights his way through the picture. It's just really a pleasure to watch him in scene after scene. So even though I had sort of mixed feelings about it overall as a film, I thought, boy, what a great casting decision to have him play that role.
0: I almost wonder if it's a rite of passage because one person you didn't mention who went through the whole Cyrano catalog was Steve Martin as uh, Cyrano in Roxanne. 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 And and it was almost like they had okay, well, Steve Martin, you know, you've done great stuff with stand up and you know you've had some success with funny movies, but can you play Cyrano? And I think that was a big miss. But um, that's just my particular opinion. But I do think it's, well, let's take somebody likable like Steve Martin, but once you slap that nose on him, now it's camp where Peter Dinklage doing the role, I think kind of capitalized on what people liked about him as Tyrion on Game of Thrones, where he's the underdog and you're rooting for him because he brings that, what you said so well, smart and articulate. And so you want him to be the spokesman and you want him to prevail. And you can immediately see what his um, insecurities are. I thought that that actually worked beautifully. And I thought, um, I'm with you. um, I also liked your word serviceable in terms of the music. I wasn't thinking of the songs either after it was over. But I thought while it was going on, that he did all right. And I was glad to see it. So, I mean, for Peter Dinklage fans, this is a must see. I found the actress playing Roxanne completely forgettable and thought she was a cut rate kate hudson Mike. what do you think
1: <laughs> i agree with you she's all right but the, nothing particularly memorable there you know and that's actually uh, you know this is a terrible irony but peter dinklage is so good so strong that the other actors are okay but they seem less than okay because he's so strong and it's one reason why you and i don't really care for roxanne because it just can't be silly and you know whereas this version of cyrano peter dinklage is so convincing so committed to it, in the final scenes of the film, it's quite heartbreaking. You know, we sort of know where the story's headed, but to actually see that, to experience that, emotionally, I got really pulled in that way. I mean, I was really, really worked up that way, which you would never say about Roxanne particularly, but even in other versions of Cyrano, this is the one that I think has so much emotional resonance because of him, but because he's so much at the heart of it, everything else pales by comparison, and the film itself, I think, again, ironically, kind of suffers for that. When he's on screen, great, but the moment one of the other actors comes on, eh, it's like it's less interesting all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, and I think you've hit on the issue with this movie. It really is a Peter Dinklage vehicle and they should have made sure that he was in every scene because the minute he leaves, you find your interest waning in terms of the other characters because they just don't have his star power. And I, I do think that he brings the heart to the movie. You know, the What you like about the movie of what's there is the scenes where he's in it he seems so committed and by the way apparently he played this on stage so it wasn't like he didn't know what he was doing i mean they took a, a stage play and and decided to make a movie out of it which they do all the time but the stage and movies are really really different but he's still the best thing in this movie so mike we're we're like in, um the last minute so i'll give you the last word
1: well one advantage of uh, taking a stage play like this is he repeats the role. There are other people involved with the production who also repeat you know, from stage to, to screen. And so it's a fairly confident film in terms of the actual staging of it. And that, even though I'm not crazy about it as a film, the film coheres, it, sort of, it holds together at that level because they had already worked out the creative issues when they were doing it on stage. Peter Dinklage got great reviews doing it on stage and you can see why. And so he just simply carries it over. He's going from a stage in live theater to a soundstage. You know, it's an easy transition for something like this. And there's a very theatrical quality to the material. So you don't have to, like, make too many alterations or calibrations, right? I mean, it's pretty much camera ready, as they say.
0: Thanks, Mike. That brings us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.